how many of you have been to Glacier National Park? Anybody been to Glacier National Park? That is on my bucket list. We have not made it there yet, but I cannot wait. And there's a spot in Glacier National Park, and it's called the Triple Divide Peak. Anybody know, everybody, anybody ever been there? Anybody heard of that? All right, it is, it is the hydrological apex of the North American continent. I know, you're like, Kevin, you're a nerd. I don't know what all those words mean. Here's what it means, okay? There's this peak. There's this peak. And, and when, when rain falls, that water will either flow to the Pacific Ocean, to the Atlantic Ocean, or to the Arctic Oceans, right? There's this one peak, and, and it separates into the three. It's fantastic, fascinating to me. Can you imagine, can you imagine three little raindrop friends, right? They're up in the clouds, and they start falling down, and they're talking about, oh, man, I can't wait to see what my life's going to be like, and it's going to be wonderful, and they land literally inches apart, and they end up on opposite oceans, uh, 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 completely apart from the world, that far from one another, and they landed an inch apart. Like, that's, to me, that's fascinating, fascinating that that happens, but you ever notice that, that, that's true for rain, but it's also true for life. Where there are some times where we have these dividing lines, these choices that we make that really define our future, leading make sometimes to continental divides that change the course of our life forever. Like how many of you can think back to some of those decisions in your life? How many of you can think back to a decision that you made years ago that has affected who you are today and what you've become? We all have those things. Sometimes they're good decisions. Sometimes they're bad decisions. In fact, I was talking to a friend of mine not long ago, and he was sharing. He said, hey, Kevin, you know, I went through this really difficult season. Man, I was, I was dealing with drugs, and I was dealing with, with, with homelessness, and I'm, I'm struggling. And he said, I can think back. I was in that setting. I could think back to the very specific day when someone first offered me some of the drugs. I can think back to that specific day, that specific setting, and I felt this pressure to fit in. I, I felt this pressure where I've got this pain. What am I supposed to do with this pain? Man, this seems like an easy way to not feel that for a little while. He said, I can think back to that very moment when I crossed that line. And he said, my life went down a dark hole. How many of us have memories like that? Where there was something in front of us and we crossed that line into difficulty, into pain, into hardship. And that choice became a catalyst for the years to come. Fortunately, we don't just make bad choices that cross that line that change our life forever. We can also make good choices that change our life for the good in the future as well. Because that same friend, he said, I'm, I'm struggling through this. I'm struggling. And he said, Kevin, I had this moment of clarity. I had this moment of clarity where I thought, what the heck am I doing? What the heck is going on? Is this how I want to live? And he said, on that day, I had this moment of clarity, and it was like, hey, if I don't do something different, I'm either going to end up in jail or dead. And that day, that day became that dividing line for him, where he crossed that line to change. He crossed that line to say, I'm going to get clean. I'm going to put some better people in my life. And I'll tell you what, this friend, 
Man, I'm so encouraged by where he's at in life. He's got a family, a wife, children, a career. And I think about how much his life changed simply because he came to this dividing line. He came to this decision and he said, I'm going to walk over the line and do something different and do something good in my life. I like those stories. Those are the stories that get me excited to do what we do here at Restoration Church. You know, since May, we've been in this sermon series that we're calling The Story. Where basically what we're trying to do is we've been 24 weeks in and trying to grasp the, the entire meta narrative of the Bible. Where the Bible, you have all these different books, you've got all these different characters, you've got different commands, you've got all this stuff in the Bible that sometimes is a little bit confusing. But what we've tried to do is say the Bible is actually one big story. It's a single story, a single narrative, all pointing us to Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. Listen, we have been through today's week, week number 24, and this is the climax of the story. Everything that's come before today has been leading up to this point, setting the stage for where we are today. And guess what? Everything that's going to come after is in response to what happens in our text today. The text that Abby read for us this morning is a text that talked about three different crosses. And I'll tell you what, those three crosses, they tell the entire story of humanity. In those, in those crosses, you see the story of humanity. We've got the cross of Jesus, and this is the cross of redemption. This is the climax of all of life and eternity and scripture. That Jesus, that Jesus, he makes a way for us to have a restored relationship with God. That is what Jesus did on the cross. He made a way for us to have a restored relationship with God, to have our brokenness finally healed. He went to the cross so we could be made new and become new creations. But then you look at those other two crosses, and one of those crosses leads to rejection, and the other cross leads to repentance. And it shows us, it shows us what the dividing line for eternity is and how we respond to the cross of Christ. So a little context, context is key. Jesus has been doing his, his, his ministry. He's been healing people. He's been performing all these uh, great uh, sermons. He's doing all this great stuff. But then he gets arrested. Like, what happened? I thought he was doing so good. Well, the issue was the religious leaders were jealous of him. And so they accused him of blaspheming God by claiming that he was the Messiah. And so the religious leaders, they send Jesus through this absolutely ridiculous trial. It was, it was, it was a ridiculous trial. They take him before Pilate, who's the governor. And Pilate says, this man's done nothing wrong, nothing worth us killing him. But if you remember the crowds, what do the crowds yell? The crowds yelled, crucify him, crucify him. They demanded his life. And Pilate's like, all right, whatever, it's on your hands. You called for it. So as Jesus is led away to be hung on the cross, this is, this is where our story picks up. In Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 32. It says two other criminals were led and put to death with him. And they came to a place called the school. And there they crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. That right there is a dividing line of history marked by three crosses. Jesus on the cross in the center 
the Son of God on the cross, and either side of him are criminals. Let me, let me paint this picture for you, right? Have you ever watched the president? When he goes to sign some new legislation in, when he goes to, to do some big thing and make an important speech, have you ever noticed how he always has other people around him? He flanks himself. So he's going to make, a, is he, he's gonna make a, a decision about the military. He has military generals and other garb dressed up and standing next to him, kind of flanking him, representing, hey, we're going to do something with this. Or he's got uh, local leaders or senators or, or whoever. He always has other people with him, right? This is the defining moment of God's work in human history. Here's the Son of God in front of the world for all to see and God chooses two unnamed criminals to be on either side of him, to be with him. Because ultimately, this is what this moment is all about. It's about redemption for criminals, for sinners like us. So let's start out and look at the cross of Christ. One of the things you might think is, is well, how did this happen? Now, let me, let me just be clear. Jesus wasn't put on that cross because the religious leaders were jealous of him. Jesus wasn't put on the cross because of the accusations the religious leaders made about him. Jesus wasn't put on the cross because the, the Roman officials designated that to happen. Jesus wasn't put on the cross because the Jews rejected him. Jesus wasn't put on the cross because Judas betrayed him. Now, we need to understand that Jesus was put on the cross for the purposes of God. Jesus is put on the cross because of something that God has been pursuing from the very beginning of history. From the very beginning, God said this. God said, I'm going to send a Savior. I'm going to send a Savior, and he's going to take the place of humanity. He's going to take their curse of death. No, no one put Jesus on the cross. That was God's plan. In fact, we think about what we've learned in this series. Remember the very beginning of Adam and Eve, where God told Adam and Eve, hey, I'm going to send a deliverer who's going to crush the serpent of death. He's going to crush Satan. Who was God talking about? He was looking forward to Jesus. Noah and the flood. We studied Noah and the flood, and we remember, remember we looked at the flood, and God gave them the rainbow. And the rainbow was to represent that God wasn't going to destroy the earth by a flood again. But if you remember... That word for rainbow actually is not this happy, uh, cute rainbow. It actually represents a war bow, like a bow and arrow. And that bow is actually pointed up to heaven because this is God saying heaven is going to, or excuse me, is saying God is going to absorb the arrow of judgment rather than fi firing that arrow of judgment down on us. Again, Noah, Noah and the rainbow is pointing to what God's going to do through Jesus. We saw the entire sacrificial system. We talked about the sacrificial system, about how uh, in the Old Testament, when you were a sinner, you had to sacrifice a, a, a lamb, an innocent lamb, who suffers and dies in the place of the guilty. Guess what that's pointing forward to? Jesus on the cross. We looked at Isaiah, and Isaiah prophesied about the suffering servant. The suffering servant who'd be wounded for our transgressions, who'd be bruised for our iniquities, and the punishment that would, uh, that would belong to us was put onto him. He said, by his stripes we are healed. What's Isaiah pointing forward to? 
He's pointing forward to this very moment of Jesus on the cross. In fact, this is what Martin Luther said. He said, all of the prophets, they foresaw that on the cross, Jesus would become the greatest murderer, the greatest adulterer, the greatest thief, the greatest rebel, the greatest blasphemer there ever was. Our merciful father sent his only son into the world and said, Jesus, you're going to become Peter the denier. You're going to become Paul, the persecutor, and the blasphemer, and the cruel oppressor. You're going to become David, the adulterer. You're going to become Adam, the sinner who ate the fruit in paradise. You see, that is what Jesus did on the cross. He took our punishment upon himself. So you know what that means for us? Not just that, that, that Jesus became Adam, the guy who ate the fruit, and David, the adulterer. But he became us. He became the husband who neglects his family. He became the immoral woman who, who, who takes her worth out of what she can do with her body. He became the drug addict and the alcoholic. He became the teenager who's lying to their parents. He became the Christian who's living a double life. He became the proud, the selfish, the apathetic. He became us in our worst moment. That is who he became on the cross. You understand how beautiful this is? See, sometimes, sometimes in Christianity, we say, we say uh, well, Jesus died for me. Listen, G Jesus didn't just die for you. No, he died instead of you. Do you understand how that works? He didn't just die for you. He died instead of you. I mean, the gospel, the message of the gospel is simplified into four words. Jesus in my place. He died in your place. He suffered for you. And that is remarkable. And that is the climax of Scripture and life, is Jesus in your place on that cross. The question is, how are we going to respond to that? The great thing is, we have a couple examples from those criminals on either side. Look at the way the first criminal responds. He says in verse 39, One of the criminals who was hanged by Jesus railed him and said, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. What does he want? He's saying, listen, if you're really the Christ, if you're really the Son of God, if you're God in the flesh, Emmanuel, save yourself from the cross and take us off the cross so we don't have to die. Do something for us, Jesus. But I think this other criminal is where I'm more intrigued about. That first one says, hey, if you're so great, then why don't you do this for me? But look at this other criminal. The other criminal, he came to understand some things about faith. In fact, when we see how the second, I want to look at how the second criminal responds to the cross of Christ because I think it shows us how we cross into that dividing line into eternity. Look what he says. Verse 40. The other criminal rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, we are receiving our due reward for our deeds but this man, this man, he's done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me 
when you come to your kingdom. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There's a couple things I want to point out from how that second criminal responds to the cross of Christ. First thing, he wanted to be right with Jesus. He didn't just want what Jesus could do for him. He actually wanted to be right with Jesus. Remember, remember what the first criminal wanted? He said, Jesus, if you're the son of God, get us down off these crosses. Save our lives. But the second criminal, he doesn't, he doesn't ask to be taken off the cross. What's his request? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. His concern, his, 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 his main concern it's not that his life would be spared. His main concern is that he would be right with Jesus. He realizes, man, I don't just need a change of circumstance. I need to change what my life is built upon. And instead of asking for the life he wants, he asks and says, God, would you, make, would you make Jesus the center of my life? Would you make my life about him? See, do you realize there's a difference between seeking Jesus for what he can do for you and seeking Jesus for, for just who Jesus is. There's a huge difference between those two things. And they show our heart. And when we can go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want what you can do for me. You'll make my life better. You'll bless me. And that's a completely different attitude than, Jesus, I just need, I just need you. I need to be right with you. And the second criminal the attitude you see from him is he has no concern about saving his life. He simply wants to be made right with God. It's going to make a huge difference for him. Second thing, the second criminal. He understood his guilt before God. Again, this is what he said in verse 41. He said, we are justly receiving our due reward because of our deeds. He's saying, dude, we deserve this. And I don't think he's just talking about Rome's punishment of putting him on a cross. He's saying, listen, we deserve to be abandoned by God and punished for our sins. See, sometimes we have this inaccurate view of repentance. Sometimes we think that repentance is when we feel sorry for how we've hurt other people or for the trouble we've caused in our own life. That's not repentance. Repentance recognizes that our sin is first and foremost against God. Repentance recognizes first and foremost that our sin has violated this perfect and holy God. In fact, an example of this, King David. When King David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then he murdered Uriah to kind of cover it up so no one else would find out about it. Remember when, when God brought him to repentance? And David wrote Psalm 51. What does Psalm 51 says? Psalm 51 verse 4 says, God, against you and you only have I sinned. You know, I read that and I'm like, but what about all the other people that David hurt? Killed Uriah, impacted Bathsheba, all the people who trusted him, they lost that trust. Like he's hurt a lot of people. But King, King David wanted to be right with God. And he understood that God is most important. And first and foremost, he had violated God. God was the main one that he had sinned against. That is so significant for us to understand. 
that our sin is not just creating problems for people around us. Our sin is an offense to God. It is an offense to this God that's been gracious to us, that has loved us and, and bestowed grace upon grace upon us. You understand your sin is not just against the people around you. It's against God himself. This second criminal, I think the Lord got to the point that showed it to him. And he says, hey, we are receiving what we deserve because we are sinners. And then look at his third thing. Third thing about this second criminal is he boldly requested the grace of God. I mean, think about how crazy this guy's request is. Essentially what he's saying, okay, Jesus, I know you're the perfect Lord. I know that you are Emmanuel, God in the flesh, God with us. I, I get it. But Jesus, whenever you get to where you're going, to whatever kingdom you're going to go to, to whatever rewards await you, Jesus, would you stop? Remember a guy that you've known for maybe 30 minutes. Would you stop and remember me, a guy who's done nothing worthy in his entire life? God, would you stop and remember me, a guy who's about to be executed as a criminal? It's a pretty crazy request, right? I mean, think about this guy. Think about it. This guy's done nothing useful for God. He's done nothing useful for God. He's never going to be able to tell anybody else about Jesus and what Jesus has done for him. He, he, he's never going to go on a mission trip. He's never going to serve in the church nursery. He's never going to give money to the church. And here's his bold request. Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And what's even crazier? Jesus grants his request. And why does he do that? Why does Jesus grant this crazy request? Because of grace. Because grace is who he is. That is the heart of who Jesus is. In fact, John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Uh, glory is the only son from God, full of what? Full of grace and truth. Grace, that is who Jesus is. You know what grace is? Grace is what you show when you really love somebody. That's what grace is. The story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son. He goes and he, he wastes his dad's inheritance. And what does his dad do? He's not evaluating his son. Okay, how much can you do for me to make up for what you've done in the past? He's not there calculating all the money that his son has lost. No, what does he do? He loves his son so much he thinks about the joy that he's going to have of having him back, and he throws him a party. That's grace. There's no calculating what you can do for me. There's no calculating how you can make it up for me. It is simply the joy of having him back, and he extends grace upon grace. Isn't that what John 3.16 is all about? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. This is grace upon grace, and it is who Jesus is. And if we realize that we might have screwed up our life, we might be like this criminal and be like, man, I don't know how much long I have left. I don't have much to offer. But listen, every one of us, like this criminal, we have the ability to reach out and to pray and to boldly ask for the grace 
of God in our lives. So here we've got these two criminals before the cross of Christ. One of them says, Jesus, I want you because what you can do for me. And he's going to face rejection. But the second criminal, the second criminal who figures some things out, he realized most important, I want to be right with God. He realized I'm guilty before God. And he made this bold request for grace. And his life was redeemed. He experienced redemption. And that is the whole idea of this message. When I think about this message, here's the summary. It's that your response to the cross of Christ, it determines your eternity. How you respond to the cross of Christ, it will determine your eternity. See, the way human history plays out is we've got the cross of Jesus right here. And how we respond, we can respond like the first criminal. Arrogance, pride, I'm not going to bow down to you. And if that's our response, we will face rejection. We will suffer eternity in hell, separated from God. But if we come to the point where we're willing to respond to the cross of Christ, to recognize who we are and what Jesus has done for us, that is when we experience redemption. That is when we get across that line of faith into eternity, into a life-changing relationship with Jesus. Now, this is where we talk about the gospel. We talk about what Jesus has done for us. And we get to application. I don't have a list of things for you to do today. That would not be this message. But I've got a couple questions for you. Number one, are you seeking Jesus to be Lord of your life? Or are you seeking Jesus to be a gateway to something else? Are you seeking Jesus like the first criminal? Jesus, I want you because you can do something for me. I want you because you can get me off this cross and you can save my life. Or are you seeking Jesus like a second criminal? Saying, Jesus, I want you to be Lord. I will surrender to you. I will follow you. I want to be made right with you. Do you want God for God? Or do you want what God can do for you? You see, there's an analogy used by a pastor by the name of John Piper. And he says, this is how we often view God. We view God like a tire iron. You know what a tire iron, uh, tire iron is? It's what you use to change a tire when you've got a flat tire, right? A tire iron, it's a useful instrument, right? When you're in a pinch, you want to have a tire iron. It's important. You don't want to get caught without it. Does anybody really love a tire iron, though? No. Nobody displays your tire iron like, oh, I love this thing. It's amazing. No, you hide that tire iron in your trunk. You don't want to see it. You just need it when you need to fix your car. It's a useful tool, but you don't really care about it. What do you really care about? You care about your car, right? Listen, that's how many of us view God. God, you're useful for something I really want. God, I want a peaceful life. So God, I'm going to pursue you so you will make my life easier. 
God, God, I want a stable family, so I'm going to pursue you so you'll make my kids obey and make my marriage strong. God, God, I'm in a jam. I'm in a pickle. I'm going to pursue you so you fix my problem that I've created down here. God, God, I want to prosper. I want, I, I want to have good stuff in life. So God, I'll pursue you so you prosper me. Listen, is God simply a means to get what you want out of life? Or do you actually want God for God himself? Even if that means, like that second criminal, do you want God, even if that means you have to stay on that cross? Reality is, our churches are filled with people who are missing out on all that faith and Jesus has to offer. Because you don't really want God. You just want his stuff. You don't want to follow him. You don't want to surrender to him. You don't want to live a life that honors him. You just want his stuff. So how do you view God this morning? Second question of application. Have you crossed the line of genuine faith in Jesus? Again, this is the difference between the first and the second criminal. The first one looked at the cross of Christ, and he's like, this is ridiculous. There's no way that God works through that. But the second criminal, he looked at the cross of Christ, and he saw love. He saw the story of Scripture, the story of God, playing out right before his eyes. That God was loving the world for his only begotten son, who died in our place. And the second criminal, he shows us the process to have genuine faith. Listen, if you want to know how to have genuine faith, just follow the, the example of the second criminal. Number one, he surrenders to God as Lord of his life. Number two, he realizes he's guilty before God. And number three, he boldly asks for the grace of God. And guess what? When we boldly ask for the grace of God, you know what Scripture says? That he is faithful and just. That he came to give us extravagant grace. That when we boldly ask, listen, he is boldly going to give. So the question I have to ask, like that second criminal, have you crossed that line of faith? And if you're sitting there and you're like, I think I have, I don't know. Well, the cool thing is, is when we, when we cross that line of dividing line of faith, there's, a, there's some changes that happen. And there becomes this genuine, uh, ex, uh, uh, genuine conversion experience. And there's a couple things that happen. So these are questions just to ask you. Do you have these? Number one, are you sure of your standing with God? See, when you have this when you come to the point where you've made that genuine faith in him and you've crossed that line to, to becoming a son and daughter of God, no more do you wonder, man, I, I hope I've done enough. No more do you have to wonder, I hope I've been good enough. I hope God graves on a curve because I know I'm going to need a big curve. No, when you grasp that you're standing with God, it's not about you. 
But what Jesus has done in your place, that is where we have freedom and joy. That is where we have assurance of where we stand because it's not based on what I've done. It's based on what Jesus has done in our place. He's the one who went and died on the cross. He's the one who suffered in your place. It's good as done. And you know, you know what Scripture says? Our job is not to be good enough. Our job is not to earn it. Our job is simply to receive it. And when we have received that salvation, what Jesus has done in our place, listen, no longer do we worry. I hope I've done enough. Hope I've been enough. No, you can be sure of where you stand with God. Because Scripture has said it. Second result of genuine faith is you no longer are afraid of death. Because you have the hope of eternity in your heart. The second criminal. It's like, I don't know if God's going to save me, but I'm not afraid anymore. Because death doesn't win in the end. The criminal at this point, man, death, death was the end of everything. But when he put his faith in Jesus, <laughs> believed what Jesus said. That today you will be with me in paradise. I understood death is not the end. Death is simply a gateway into a new and a better existence in eternity. Now I'll tell you what. I don't want to die. I don't want to leave my, my wife and my kids behind. I don't want to leave this church. I'll tell you what, I'm not afraid to die, though. I'm not afraid. Because before the coroner could ever announce my death, I know that Jesus is there to welcome me into heaven and eternity. So I'm not afraid of it. I don't have to fear it. I know where I'm going. I know what's waiting for me. That's such a comfort. That doesn't mean I live recklessly. Again, I don't want to leave. But I don't have to fear it. And there's a joy that comes from that. Third result of genuine faith is we have this new confidence in this life. Again, this criminal, he doesn't got long to live. It's just a matter of time. But you know, when I picture him on the cross, I don't think he cared what all the people around him were saying. I don't think he cared about the crowds that were jeering him. I don't think he cared about the soldiers who were laughing and mocking him. Why? Because he understood, I am a child of the king. And the king is for me. And I have a, I'm going to a kingdom that is greater than beyond all imagination. I'm going to a kingdom that makes this world pale in comparison to what's waiting for me. In fact, Look at this. Look what Jesus says to him. Verse 43, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You know what the key phrase of that? The key phrase of what Jesus says is today you will be with me. You'll be with me. You'll be with me. See, when we have this genuine faith, we get this new position in life. Do you understand that's what Christianity is? It's about a new position in life. 
Christianity is not just a change in circumstance. Our life doesn't magically get better. Christianity is not a a change in behavior. We don't immediately become a perfect person. No, Christianity at its core is a change in our status, a change in our position. That is what Christianity is. Where Jesus, he's taken our spot. He's taken our position. He's, He's taken the punishment for our sin. And what does he do? He gives us his position. He gives us his standing before God. He gives us his position with the Father. That's why in Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, the apostle Paul writes, God being rich in mercy, because of the great love in which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Jesus. By his grace, we've been saved. He raises us up with him, and listen to this, he seats us with him in heavenly places. Where does Jesus seat us? With God in heavenly places. We get his seat before God. This is why Jesus could say to that criminal, today you will be with me in paradise. Because you have identified with me. Because you've identified with me, your position is no longer criminal. You're no longer known as a criminal, as a sinner, but now you're known as the beloved son. Beloved daughter, you are a co-heir with Christ. Your position has changed. And do you know how much that changes how we view this life? In fact, my daughter, we moved into our new house. We, We got this little poster for her that we hung in our room. And this is what it said. It said, I am a child of the King. I am not moved by this world, for my God is with me, and he goes before me. I do not fear, because I am his. That's what it means to be a son and a daughter of God that we belong to the king. And listen, despite what this world can do to us, we belong to the king who's got the kingdom waiting for us. And I'll tell you what, it changes how I live because guess what? These little things on this earth, when people mock me, doesn't matter because I belong to the king. The king is for me. He goes before me. It changes our outlook on how we live this life. you this morning. Have you placed genuine faith in the cross of Christ? Do you have that assurance of your standing with God that you know I'm right with God, not because of what I've done, but because of what he has done in my place? Do you have that freedom from the fear of death, knowing that death is a gateway to something better. And do you have that confidence in this life that you know that you belong to the King of kings and Lord of lords? Because if you don't, and this is what, this is what this message is all about, this is what the scriptures are all about. He said, hey, I want to invite you the opportunity to come into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. 
just like that second criminal. I invite you this morning to surrender, not to a God who's going to fix your life and make life easier, but surrender to Jesus as Lord and say, I will follow you as Lord of my life. I invite you today to confess your guilt before him. God, I acknowledge I'm broken. I'm a sinner. I'm in need of grace. And thirdly, I invite you to boldly pray for the grace of God. Say, God, I need you. I need you as my Savior. I need you as the Lord of my life. And today, God, I pray that you will forgive me of my sin and you will become my Savior. I tell you what, this life is remarkable when we cross that line of faith.